Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with prolific, legendary jazz double bassist Ron Carter. His long career has been full of originality, and it's been quite prolific. He holds a jazz record with more than 2,000 albums to his credit, and he's played with the finest to ever grace music. Cats like Tommy Flanagan, Gil Evans, Lena Horne, Bill Evans, B.B. King, and he was very influenced by his time on the bandstand with both Miles Davis and Eric Dolphy, along with many others. Over the course of our conversation, he discussed what has been going on lately, his teaching philosophy, his legacy, and much more. Please dig this interview, my friends. Mr. Carter, thank you for taking some time out. It's an honor to speak with you today. Thank you. I'm going to go ahead and start off here and ask, what has been going on lately? Well, it's snowing in New York again, man. Serious snow again. Wow, I thought they were done with that. Well, we hope so, but I guess December decided to not show up until February, so we're okay. <laughs> okay, that's good. I'm working, uh, have a concert next week with uh, Javon Jackson and Billy Billy Drummond, we just record uh, on, for Cheska Records, for Javon's latest CD, a three-person CD with me, Billy Drummond, Pan Drums, and Javon. It's some really wonderful music with the, with the Chesky sound, and I think that it's another important milestone in Javon Jackson's recorded career. Another good thing to have him notated as being done very well. So let me get to the beginnings of your life in Fernhill, Michigan. Talk to me about your childhood and how you got to a point where you loved music, loved jazz, and, and that wanted to, that, that was going to be your future. Well, it was a little more complicated than that. The teacher came in when I was 10, 11 years old to the to that grade school and decided that she was going to start an orchestra in this little black school in Ferndale, Michigan. And she bought some instruments, laid them on the table and said, okay, Justin, take your choice, and whatever you pick, we'll learn how to, we'll learn you how to play it, so to speak. So I picked the cello because it had a nice quality of anything else on the table and I uh, decided that this was for me. And then you move to Detroit, and you get and you get the double bass. How did that migration from the cello to the double bass happen? Well, I just uh, I was playing in the orchestra at school with Cass Tech, and uh, the school got these options, opportunities to play at small function PTA conventions and those kinds of in town musical events, and uh, I never got invited. I thought I played as good as the first chair cellist, and I thought that that was not okay. So. I looked around and there was no bass player, so I said, if I play bass, they'll have to call me. So I switched to bass. So when you were a kid, was it always music, or did you have any other dreams that you wanted to go after? I was a pretty decent athlete, but music seemed to be the thing that, that was that rung with me, so to speak. What was it about the bass, that sound, that lured you to it? I know you picked it, but what what has it been about the bass that's been so alluring to you? Well, at the time, it was that all I could play some music, because the school, I thought, was not being racially fair to me. So it wasn't the bass in of itself that was appealing. It was the opportunity to play music. Later on, later on, the, the more I played the instrument, the more I felt that this was ultimately my calling and there were so many things I could learn to do that I hadn't had a chance to fool around with before and I was enjoying the experience. Right on. So let me, let me jump to the Eastman School. Once you finish your time at the Eastman School, you move on to have gigs with Chico Hamilton and Jackie Byard. What was... What were those first experiences like for you? Well, you know, I, I feel like I belonged there. I mean, I never felt afraid of those guys. I never felt afraid of their music. They were Chico's band with Eric Dolphy and, and Dennis Vladimir playing guitar. They were helpful. They were cheerful. They were knowledgeable. They were sharing about their thoughts about not just Chico's music, but music in general. And, of course, Jacob Byer was a walking history of the piano, and that's my first experience with someone who had that kind of 
in-depth knowledge of the instrument who could play it at a moment's notice. It's a great experience for me. In the beginning, were you nervous when you got on stage, or was it just like putting on a good pair of shoes? I thought I, I, thought I belonged there, so I didn't get nervous at all. Speaking of Eric Dolphy, the, the envelope that he pushed was monumental. What did you learn from being around a creative force like that? Practice is important. Eric was practicing the flute or clarinet all the time, and uh, he never seemed to get enough of stumbling on ideas. But he would stumble on while practicing skill level things to try to translate that idea to the jazz setting. A very, export, a very important experience for me. And then Miles Davis and the quintet, what did you learn about being a part of that outfit? Every night is a great chance to play some great music. Don't miss it. So what did you learn over the time as a musician? How did, you, how did, how did that experience help you grow as a musician? The more music you know, the more you trust your musicians on the bandstand with you. The more I trusted Herbie, the more he trusted me, the more I trusted Tony as to where he was in the song, the more he trusted me to play the right changes, to agree on that, the more Miles got there and played the tunes at different tempo every night. But another way to see how each song has its own specific flavor at a certain speed, but to play Wayne's compositions and see how he evolved as a writer and how his songs evolved in the band. Those are all eight or nine great experiences for me that I still try to relate to today. So over your career, you're, you're the re most recorded jazz bassist with 2,221 recording credits. Is there a period in your life that you feel you created the most, you were more prolific than another period? Yesterday. Right on. <laughs> what did that 1993 Grammy for Around Midnight mean to you? I felt that it gave us a little more work than it did. Everyone thinks that, everyone hopes that that kind of, Award acknowledgement is a boost that their career finally needs, and I thought that once we got that award and the one with the, the Miles Davis Tribute Band, we'd get more work and better playing work and more options to share this issue with the audience, and uh, that, those two events never took place for me, so I was a little disappointed in the result as I anticipated it. So let's go back to the 2,221 recording credits. What does that achievement mean for you to be so, to have such a level of longevity with your jazz career? Well, again, I, I made three records this year already, so I, I think that says I'm still able to have some gas in my tank. Right on. And uh, I'll, be, I'll be a hard guy to erase. So since we're based here in Kansas City, you were in the 1996 film by Robert Altman called Kansas City. Mm -hmm. Have you spent some time here in Kansas City playing live gigs? Not enough. Now, I'm trying to get down there, but it's hard to put together a tour that includes that part of the country. You know, travel is more and more expensive, and there are fewer and fewer rooms to play, so it's difficult to hook up a a tour that keeps the travel cost at a pot, at an amount of the budget that's reasonable and still be able yeah. to pay the band to sell that they're worth. So I haven't been down there since that movie, and I'm sorry I haven't because I love the city. The great food, I wanted to see the museums, the, the baseball museum. I just haven't been able to hook up a tour with that as part of our itinerary. So what pulled you into doing this film? I guess Robert Auburn heard me play on some records and thought that this would be a nice sound for the movie, and... Uh, Knowing Harry Belafonte, he agreed that I'd be a good choice to help the band sound a certain way. And then you also appeared in the HBO series Tremmy. What was what was that experience like to be in that series? Well, be able to, for me it was just to spend that kind of time in New Orleans, which I had only been only passed through or, or played a a one set concert and left the next day. It got a chance for me to to see the city and to meet some of the people who are who make the city go around, so to speak. And, and uh, it was just not too much time after the uh, awful weather disaster 
that they had down there. So I got a chance to walk through the neighborhoods and, and see the the devastation and the damage and, and the, to the people's spirit that they weren't going to give it up and they were going to determine to make the city come back to certainly better than it was before the, the hurricane and the terrible floods. I got a chance to be a part of that emotion. It was quite an experience for me. Let me ask you, as a distinguished professor at the City College and a teacher at Juilliard, what is your teaching philosophy with your students? Answer the question is the science that you can and give them some standards to match up to. Who do you think has been one of your greatest teachers for music? They're all important. Every night I go to work, it's like I go to school free, whether it's with Devon Jackson next week, uh, whether it's Billy Drummond, the same gig, whether it's uh, Russell Malone or Donald Vega. Whoever I happen to be on the bandstand with, they are open and warm and sharing of their musical knowledge and concepts. And for me, it's a chance to see how my values stack up to theirs and adjust as needed. So, again, I'm going to school free every night, and I love it. So let me ask you this. You've played with what the world would consider every jazz hero, most jazz heroes that are out there. Who, for you personally, would you consider your jazz heroes? They all are. And if I pick one person, the other 12 would be very upset. So... It's kind of a question I kind of always try to slide by if I can, but, you know, we we never see us as having that title. We just see us as musicians who are trying to play some creative music, so I'm I'm better with the definition. Is there anybody else that you would like to play with? As I established in that previous question, you've played with so many people over the years. Is there anybody that's on your radar? I'm trying to check on Ahmed Jamal, who I heard is living in Florida now, and I'm trying to get him in my sights. To, uh, I have to share that music of his. I have to find out what that feels like. I have to see if I can help him create another kind of another view of, of of music and harmony and chords and sounds and choices and tempos. And I'm anxious to get my hands on him. So he's on my list as the number one priority right now. What's the greatest thing about waking up for you every day? I have a chance to say hello to my wife and pick up the bass. In that order of importance. Let me ask you this. It's a, it's a general question, but it packs a punch. Why do you love jazz? gives me a chance to express my feelings without needing any words. Do you have any projects or anything that's on the horizon? I know you said you had three albums that you produced. Is there anything that's coming up for you? Well, you know, I'm, I've had a pretty busy November, December, so I'm trying to take off the next three weeks to kind of let my mind rest and not worry about the best notes so much and not worry about the tunes, just to kind of do things that are pretty far from music, changing light bulbs in my house, going out buying a ladder and fixing some stuff in my house, and, and just things that I'm pretty far away from the pressures and the strains and the responsibilities of playing music all the time. So I have no projects right now because I'm trying to avoid that. I need a, I need a rest. And right now this is my rest period, so I have, I have conceived nothing but what, what's the wise of the next one but I need from my wall and my ceiling. Let me ask you this. The world has their perception of who Ron Carter is. Your family does. Your fans do. But who do you think you are? A student of the art, a scientist of the base, and the person who loves humanity. Last question, want to ask you, okay. in, the, in the annals of jazz history and your prolific, beautiful career that you've laid out with such great music, how do you want the world to remember your contribution to jazz music? Well, I, I, my, my first thought is that I'd like the musicians that I've played with and sometimes played against to think of me as a, a good bass player and a terrific friend. I'm happy with that kind of tombstone greeting on my people who work by my, by my grave marker. Beautiful. Ron, thank you, sir, for all the music, and thank you for your time today. 
There's more coming, and thanks for playing the music and loving it. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview series, where we give you a bit of insight into the legends that have given us all that jazz. And thanks to Ron for his mastery, history, graciousness, and all of that music. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store, or you can visit the neonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.